we we do get these uh, comments like, oh, look at this. There's like five sales pitches in one video. <laughs> you know, <laughs> comments like that. And it's, 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 I mean, it's funny on one side, but on the other side, it's also an indication that, okay, maybe this, you know, maybe this, this video got a little too preachy or, or, you know, too salesy. And sure, so trying sure. to find that line between not being too salesy, but at the same time, telling people that, hey, we do have a great product that we know that, you know, it's, it's, you're going to find it amazing. And, and mainly forget about amazing products. It's, it's going to solve a problem that you really have. Welcome to Dev Educate, a show about how to engage and market to developers without being salesy. I'm your host, Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me on my mission to reduce net developer frustration in the world as I interview experts and leaders in the developer relations space so we can uncover the strategies and tactics that will help you blow away barriers to developer adoption for your product. Hey everyone, welcome to Dev Educate. I'm Kamran Ayub. Today I'm joined by Shruti Kuber. Shruti, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kamran. Awesome. So we met in the Developer Marketing Alliance. I've been giving one of my first webinars on higher dev ed or developer academies and, and the difference between product marketing and technology marketing. And in that conversation, I had asked, how are people doing their content planning? And you had said that you take an iterative approach to content planning, which was really cool. And I wanted to invite you onto the podcast to talk about that. But before we get into that, just for context, for folks who are hearing you for the first time, do you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Of course. So first of all, thank you for inviting me here. And thank you for the very intuitive session you gave the other day. So that's that's probably the reason why I'm here. So thank you for that, first of all. And here's something about me. So my name is Shruti Kuber. And I come from an embedded systems background. So I studied electronics, telecommunication in, in university. And I used to work as a solutions engineer. And then I did my master's in entrepreneurship, innovation, and embedded systems again. And somehow I knew I did not want to be a developer. And I was looking at positions wherein I know I could I could still be connected to tech. I could still use my technical knowledge, but at the same time, I wanted to focus on roles which require communication, which require you know some sort of translation between tech and non-tech folks. And that's and solutions engineering is still a similar kind of jobs, but it is is more uh, sales focus. And I I was not sure I wanted to do sales at that point because I came to Germany and it would require me to speak in German, and so. I was looking for different roles and that's how I found out about developer advocacy or developer evangelist role. And so I've been working as a developer advocate since 2018. I used to work at Here Technologies, which is the Nokia company, which makes maps, if that's the simplest way I can introduce, but around here it's quite famous. So I used to work at Here Technologies in dev team of 40 people. And since then, I've changed jobs and I've started working at a really small startup called Restack with just 10 people in the entire company. So a huge leap and I'm trying to figure out the ways of startups and trying to learn as I go. So that's that's something professional uh, on the professional side about me. 
On the personal side, I used to learn, or rather I still do, I still learn Indian classical dancing on the side. And I try to keep up with it. So I used to learn it as a child. I had some, I, I stopped learning it for a while and then I took it up again. So that's something I'm really passionate about and hoping to continue doing it for a long time. <laughs> that's really cool. It's funny because, fun fact, I actually know what the Nokia here maps are because I used to oh, awesome. be, I used to be a fan of the Windows phone and and one of the they didn't really have a good maps app and it turned out that the Nokia here maps were one of the best apps around for Windows phone so that's kind of funny but that's <laughs> that was a long time ago <laughs> yeah my first purchase was a Lumia like I I was really into this oh I I don't like Androids but I'm not a sellout for buying iPhones yes, <laughs> kind of a yep. mentality. I can relate. And yeah. then I was like, exactly. And I was like, okay, Lumia 928 was was my first purchase. Yeah, that is, it's still in my drawer behind me. And <laughs> it actually turned out to be a really great camera phone when we were traveling yeah. because it had such a good it camera. It came with it. Yeah, it came with a Carl Zeiss lens. That's how they advertise it to us. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It's fun. So the Indian classical dancing, that's quite different from like what you would see in like a Bollywood film, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I recently had a huge conversation about how Bollywood is trying to sell Bollywood dance as classical dancing mm, and okay. how Kathak practitioners around the world are sort of infuriated by it. But that's a that's a different podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't say that I've seen classical dancing. Obviously, the most familiar thing. So growing up, we used to watch a lot of Bollywood movies, and, and now we still watch them mm -hmm. with our kids and stuff. And so they get to see kind of the Bollywood dances and stuff. But <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Okay. Well, so on to business. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about, first, you mentioned that you're working at Restack. What kind, mm -hmm. of, what kind of product is Restack and what kind of developers does it cater to? Sure. So Restack is a distribution platform for open source tools. And essentially what happened was our CTO is a huge fan and everybody at our, our office is a huge fan of open source tools. And open source tools have a huge pro to them that one, they're open source, which means you don't really have to pay for them essentially at, at its core. But the main thing is it's a source code is open source. So you can sort of change the deployment as you want. You can add features to it. You can add plugins. You can build whatever, you know, fits your sort of deployment. But the problem with open source is that on the developer side, like for, for developers, open source means you have to take care of the deployment eventually. So you have to put in a lot of efforts to sort of uh, maintain this deployment, maintain the scaling. Then there's upgrades, you know, open source, like new open source tools come up with upgrades very often these days. And so there is this whole issue of how do, how do I upgrade to the latest version? Do I upgrade? Is it compatible and everything else? On the other hand, for open source creators, there is a lot of pressure from, from let's say, sometimes investors to make enterprise version. On the other hand, I mean, even if you don't consider the pressure from investors, even as a product for them to sustain, they do need money. They need people who are motivated and also paid at times to maintain these tools. Mm -hmm. And so they have to figure out 
a way to monetize their deployment. And then eventually what happens is they they focus on their open course, open core, you know, offering. And, and then the community complains that they're not focusing enough on the open source part. And so this, this is a crunch of resources and it's just like the interest of people dies down and really great products are sort of lost in that mix. And so what Restack does is one for developers who want to use these tools. It is a platform where you can deploy open source tools on Kubernetes with just a click. So then you don't have to take care of the ops. You just get a tool that you can use. You can concentrate on, you know, writing code on top of those tools. On the other hand, for open source developers, you can use it as a distribution platform for your open source tools. So Restack will deploy it, deploy your versions of this open source tools on top of Kubernetes. It gives you the you know flexibility of auto scaling and upgrades and all of those features that make open like that make Kubernetes so attractive. And you know use it as a way to either monetize your open source tools or distribute different versions of it to different customers. So like also use it as your enterprise distribution platform and so on. So that's what Restag is working on. And uh, we are a tiny, tiny team of 10 people. And currently we're working on building up a few more important features that are necessary for this to make an amazing product for developers on both sides. So developers who are users of tools as well as developers of open source tools. Gotcha. So <clears throat> I think to the two audiences, I think I called out were mm -hmm. the open source developers themselves or the creators or maintainers, mm -hmm. and then the users of open source, the people who want to use the open source products like in production to deploy. Exactly. Awesome. And so Restack basically takes care of a lot of the pain of self-hosting. So if you want to use an open source product that you want to self-host, normally and I have to do this myself, so I understand the pain. Mm -hmm. You have to manage the deployment, and uh, you can you can put stuff into a Docker container. You can try to orchestrate it, and I've used Ansible and things like that before, but it's still mm -hmm. big pain. Docker, so yeah, Docker is super easy to set up, but the problem comes after you set up, right? Like yeah. upgrades, like managing upgrades is just oh, you do Docker compose down, you upgrade it to the next stable let's say, you know, version and then just do Docker Compose up. But then a lot of it is lost in that. Like one, there is downtime, but also, you know, testing that new update and then setting up the whole CI/CD pipeline for yourself and then, you know, figuring out like the routing to like, you know, switch from the older version to the new version. It's it's a lot of, lot of pain. And especially like if you are the only developer who's also working on the tool, like you, you want to work, you want to use the tool. You don't want to spend your time setting it up or like maintaining it. So yes. it's, it's a real pain. Yeah, for sure. So Restack sounds very cool. And so that brings us into uh, these two different audiences. Maybe do you want to paint a picture for the listeners for how you think about those two audiences and maybe starting with how you do planning for that like for example mm -hmm. do have you developed personas that kind of target these two audiences or how do you approach that uh, definitely so i mean i think to create content it's very important to initially define the personas because when you define who you're making the content for you know you can understand their pain point better because there's a lot of 
content available for everything, right? But to make quality content, you need to understand what what is their pain point and how can you solve them through your content? Because if your content is just a bunch of instructions, information, but it's not, you know, appealing to anyone, no one's, no one's going to watch it. It's not going to, you know, benefit anyone. So I think it's very important for your content to benefit someone. And for that, you need to find out who that someone is. So we start by defining personas. And with Restack, we have started like the, the open source tools that we are focusing on are the data engineering tools. So the modern data stack tools or data engineering tools in general. So your ETL tools, your orchestrator, your sort of transformer, so like TBT, Airflow, Airby, those kind of tools. So to define, so sort of figure out who our users are going to be, the sort of two personas that we have are one is data engineers who want to set up pipelines, who want to set up these tools and mainly in on their own sort of AWS or GCP. So on their, on their own cloud where they want control over the data. And on the other hand, the other persona is the maintainers of these open source tools. So two different personas and two different sides to the platform, essentially. So we, we defined our personas that way. We try to focus on data engineers who are especially the ones that end up doing a lot of the ops work, but don't really want to do it. So it's, it's, it's very specific, I know, but like there's a lot of them who are usually in like smaller teams who may or may not be in companies who have like, you know, five DevOps people to maintain all of their products. So the data engineer ends up take, like, you know, maintaining the tool as well as creating those pipelines, as well as writing some, you know, cron jobs to keep the pipeline well and, and all, the, all, the, all of those things. So yeah. that's, that's how we define the personas. Okay. So there's a few things that I think I want to try to dig into a little. Mm-hmm. For, first of all, I love how you've kind of defined your niche and which is to start with data engineering, because I think when I, I mean, when I talk to people, a lot of Founders, especially, or even even marketing leaders, they want to be their product is you know everything to everyone. Everybody mm-hmm. needs our product, and so our pos- yeah. our, our personas are everybody. <laughs> but uh, I think what's cool about the advantage of niching down is that now, if you're focused on data engineers, you get to know their pain points super well, and you can craft mm-hmm. you know very specific and targeted messaging to those pain points and. It's a way to get very laser focused on who you're serving. And it's a really great kind of minimum viable audience that you've chosen. And so you can you can build that credibility and that trust with that small niche audience. And then you can expand from there once 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 you've landed in that audience, you can expand. Oh, Definitely. Yeah. So for for gathering that information, what were your kind of research methodologies? How did you approach sort of building those personas in the first place? So this was this was sort of the the persona or like the niche of data engineering was decided even before I joined. So this was our CEO and CTO. And when they had this idea, what they essentially did is they spoke to a lot of people. Yeah, and... just talk to a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they just spoke to a lot of people trying to understand, you know, because it is an open source, who who are the people who are more likely to use open source, right? That's that's the thing. Mm-hmm. And who are the personas who are more likely to, you know, use open source for the for the reasons of, let's say, for all the different reasons. And 
what they found out essentially was that of course people who want to and especially being in Europe right the like there's more focus on GDPR compliant products mm -hmm. and so what what they saw was that there is data engineers people building the data pipeline and for them it's essential that the data is in their control and the data and their product essentially is GDPR compliant CCPA compliant and in all of those, you know, data privacy protection compliances, they, they, they follow it. And so the more people they spoke to, they realized, okay, this is, this is our niche and that this is what we should start with. Because also like in, in the same time, the, a lot of people were talking about modern data stack and how sort of the whole data pipeline had, for the lack of a better word, disintegrated into smaller chunks and smaller elements and there was different tools for every sort of subsection within the data pipeline. So there was more and more open source tools coming in. AirPyte was getting very popular during that time. DBT was very popular. So they like they got into this world of uh, sort of open source data engineering and that is how they figured out okay this is where where the like the biggest pain point lies and this is where we should start from. Yeah, and and sort of what you're talking about too is it can seem like it can seem at first when you choose a niche that it's like oh well how many how many problems could there really be but then it's like an iceberg mm -hmm. it's like the tip of the iceberg once you've chosen which tip like which iceberg you want to focus on then you actually dive underwater and you see that it's a huge massive amount of information and like a subculture almost. Exactly. And so you, you get to uncover all these sorts of like very specific pain points that these data engineers are going through. Like GDPR wouldn't have been something that might have been top of mind if you were, you know, trying to just target developers. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So from there, now you've you've got these personas and they are defined. Mm -hmm. Do you keep them up to date? How do you how do you treat them? Do are they just created once or do you refine them? What's your process for that? So this is like this is something I I learned in the last one year, right? With with startups, nothing is the same. Like two two weeks later, you have a different thing going on, and <laughs> startup just things change really really fast. So it is definitely not possible to set a persona and then okay, this is what you're going to work on for the next six months. No, yeah, <laughs> definitely not possible. And and coming from working at here technologies, which is like a much older company, much bigger company. So like 9,000 employees. So much bigger setup mm -hmm. was for me like a drastic change. So with with here, sort of the personas came from the the bigger, like the, the management, higher up management and a sort of strategy meetings higher up that took place. And then they trickled down to us that, okay, this is the personas you're going to be targeting and these are the pillars and, and this is how it is going to be. And then we sort of adapted the content around it with startups. We, so although like this might seem like a very niche, very specific persona, we still keep it fairly flexible. So, and then depending on the kind of inquiries we're getting, the kind of, you know, users that we're getting, we sort of modify who we target. And yeah. I think mm -hmm. there's no, there's no, set frequency as how often we change it. It is, it is a lot of, it, it is a lot of trial and error, but it is all of, also a lot of sort of gut feeling and a lot of talking to people again, like just, just trying to understand who's coming to our platform, who's using our platform. 
you know, trying to talk to a lot of hobbyists as well as professionals who come onto this platform to use it. So it is it is trial and error in in a way, but it's also like trial and error based on a lot of data that we keep collecting over the time. Right. Yeah. So they they're basically evergreen and you know a continuous a continuous improvement sort of mindset to keeping them updated. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's great. Okay, so you've got these personas in hand. How do you approach your your content planning? Do you want to walk people through kind of what your process is? Mm -hmm. So even so, with 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 the persona sort of you know even a rough sketch of the persona, like like I said, right? Even with that said, there's still intent that you need to consider. So if you if you talk into like talk about let's say marketing or content marketing. The, the concept that, you know, the funnel, we, we talk about the funnel with like, you know, lower intent, creating awareness type of content. And then as you go towards the end of the funnel, towards the narrow part of the funnel, you're targeting sort of people with very high intent who are like, who know about your product or who know about the the sort of area that you're working in and definitely want to, would would benefit from your product. So if you consider that, it is different content for different areas of this funnel. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about awareness, the the content that you want to create is let's talk about data engineering in general. Mm -hmm. And let's let's sort of target on the like the peripheral topics. So introductory topics. So, you know, what is let's say if you're talking about data engineering. So like a modern data stack is a fairly new term, if I could say say that. So then topics around what is exactly in, in the modern data stack and people want to know more about, okay, is it just a new buzzword or what does it mean to me? Like, am I going to have to change the, you know, the entire infrastructure of my organization? So people want to know what this new term means and mm -hmm. what tools are in this modern data stack. And so if you're talking about like, oh, this used to be a monolithic giant of a, of a data pipeline. And now it's broken down. Okay, what is it broken down in? And what are my options? Is this my, like, is Airbyte my only ETL tool? Or is, you know, is Airflow my only orchestrator? So people want to know what are my options. They want to compare these options and sort of a very early introductory view into this world. So that's that's like the awareness content or like the higher, sort of higher level content. And then mm -hmm. there is content for people who already know what an airflow is a little bit, right? And people want to maybe, maybe want to switch from airflow to Daxter. And so then there is more like deeper comparison articles about, okay, when would I choose a Daxter over an airflow or the other way around? So you go a little deeper into people who already know data engineering has have been in the let's say in the same profession for a couple of years and they they know a little bit deeper into this and you know they also need a little deeper content and then you have the more like even more deeper content wherein these are not data engineers who are just using tools but also having to maintain these tools given their seniority as well as given the fact that they probably don't have someone in ops or, you know, the ops people are, let's say, maintaining the main product of their team, whereas the data analytics is is like a part of, of their organization. So like the BI teams and stuff. Mm -hmm. So then there is content for them, which is talking specifically about how to scale 
an airflow on Kubernetes? And, you know, why would you deploy on Kubernetes instead of deploying it with Docker Compose? And, you know, very, very targeted, very like the, the, the you know that the content is going to get a few hundred views. But it it is important content because even if it's getting a few hundred views, if you see, like, you know, if you interact with people who's, who've, who've seen this or who've read this and the questions that they ask, they're very specific and they were looking for certain things and they couldn't find it and they found it in your content. And so mm-hmm. delivering that kind of value to like a very niche audience in, in terms of people specifically focusing on who are like further in the in the journey using these tools and are stuck at, you know, scaling it or upgrading it or, you know, whether I should move to the latest version of Airflow or not. So sort of deeper content within that. So that's that's sort of the funnel for, let's say, the data, data engineer persona that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Nice. And so you've got these different levels of depth that you can go into with your mm-hmm. content. And these are targeting different stages of the developer journey for data engineers, which is Correct. very very cool. And so what does your content planning sprint look like? Or what when you sit down to create this content, how often do you plan out what these articles are? And who, like who's, who's in the room when you're doing this planning? Sure. So as I said, we're a super small team. So a lot of these decisions are taken with the, I mean, so our CEO, we have a growth lead, we have in, in the content team, then it would be me and our sort of video producer slash designer slash everything that looks magical on the website <laughs> that, he, that he's made, this person. So the four of us are, and the CTO, sometimes we will sit together and one, so there's multiple inputs that decide this, right? So one input definitely is what is going on in the sales side of it. Like, you know, because the sales team, which is the growth lead and, and the CEO are having conversations with people who are on their journey to buy the product as well as, you know, using the product or evaluating it. So we have input from them as to who are these personas and sort of what are their pain points. So mainly we get inputs from our CEO and growth lead in terms of what are the pain points. On the other hand, with our, like from our CTO, we have input in terms of, okay, where is the product right now? What are the, like, what, you know, what are the key features and what are, how, how do we, let's say, solve these pain points or what are the sort of important factors that you should highlight in, in terms of what the product offers to our developers? And then in also the other input is, okay, there's a bunch of things that we can talk about, but sort of deciding, okay, what do we talk about right now? Mm-hmm. Because I can I can make videos about all the three. Like, you know, I can make either like a really higher level video, then a medium sort of intent video, and then like a really deep how to scale superset on Kubernetes video. But then if I focus on all of them at the same time, me personally will be super confused because mm-hmm. I will have, like, you know, I'll be, I'll have to be an octopus. You sort of trying to grasp a lot of things very quickly. And then I don't want to do a sort of a half job on this one. So yeah, one thing we definitely decide is exactly which part are we going to focus on in the next two weeks or whatever, two weeks, three months, 
whatever sprint we decide that day. And we've tried going in like three month sprints. Like initially we tried, okay, let's, let's do, let's say this, that for the next quarter, we focus on this. And that has not worked out for us. The quarter mm-hmm. thing does not work out because mm-hmm. we're super early in in building this product, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what we realized is that one month sprints work really well for us in terms of also like planning the content, like the releases and then the workloads on on our designer and on me as well for the research that we do. So we we figured like by again with trial and error, we figured out that one month sprints work out really well for us. And then depending on the kind of content we want to do, like we sort of come up with, okay, a smaller content, maybe we can produce more often. So maybe we decide that, okay, this one, we can do two uh, two videos a week. So we need eight, like we need to plan for eight videos now for this month. And then always try to find like this, come up with this one format, which is which is going to be easier to produce or or like faster to produce. And then the other format that we can put a little more time into or which needs a little more refining or a little more, let's say, reviews and and efforts from writing or from from the visualization point of view. So then we will decide that, okay, what are these two formats? We then come up with like select one of the topics and produce like one video for each of the formats. And this goes through like a thorough review process from all these five people I spoke about. So we have a brainstorming session of, okay, what the tone of voice should be, how, you know, what, what should, like, what should it contain, right? Like what should the content have and how many issues should be even addressed in this? And again, like the other parts of it. So like right now we're, we were, so the format is also very important, right? So we decided very early on that we want to focus on videos. Because my my CTO's former company was was like he was he was in this whole YouTube sort of arena. So his previous company was a influencer management platform. So mm-hmm. he knows videos really well. So he really believes in the power of videos and in you know sort of taking forward information and then sort of conveying it to people. So we decided early on that we want to do more videos to start with. So then smaller details in terms of videos about how long do you want the video to be how you know how snappy do you want it to be because sometimes these topics tend to be quite boring right and i have like i have sat through these webinars where you know usually if you if you google or if you search for certain topics on youtube also you'll find People with their hoodies on, you know, head down, looking into a screen, mumbling something in <laughs> 45 minute videos. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're definitely not appealing. So how can we make, I, I wouldn't say boring topic, but I, I would say like a content heavy topic, right? Like there's a lot of, lot to, like a lot of information in that. So how can we make that video a little more interesting? Can we change the tone of voice? Can we make it a little more snappy? Can we... Mm-hmm you know, build it in a like multiple chunks so that, you know, it's not too much information at once. So that's sort of the YouTube format, sort of it is decided. And then when one video or like one content piece is like we we nail that one content piece and then we're like, okay, this is the this is the format to follow. And then we create more content on that format. And then that goes on for let's say one one month. And middle of the month, we plan for the next month. 
And so we did this for a few months and then eventually we got bored of that format. And now we are again planning for a different format. So this sort of goes on on a month to like a month to month and a half iterations, let's say. Nice. Okay. And so one of the things that you mentioned early on is the the different inputs that come into that meeting. And so I heard that you do, there's a top-down input, which is, you know, from sales, mm -hmm. sales conversations. And then as a, like a community manager and a developer advocate, is there also bottom-up inputs that come from the community too, who are like watching the videos or even just from the community itself, like in conversations or the people that you talk to? Definitely. I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. So yeah. I, if you, if you see my Slack, I am a, I'm part of like a million Slack channels. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, these are usually like, these are usually like these communities for these tools that I spoke about. So the open source data tools that we're sort of focusing on, I'm part of all of these channels and time and again, we keep so I, I keep sort of, you know, lurking into these channels and mm -hmm. looking at chats and what people are talking about, you know, sort of keeping an eye on if there are these questions that people are constantly asking. So we source a lot of the pain points from here. So I, I, I'm a part of all of these channels, you know, which, which are, which focus on either like the general channel or like deployment channel or starting with superset or, you know, getting started sort of channels. So I keep an eye on all of these because initially we did not, like when we did not have content, we had to get feedback from different places. So that's where I sort of collected feedback from. So what are the questions people are asking? Where are people getting stuck? I also like did some manual research in terms of, I went to videos that are available about this particular tool and then just sort of reading through the comment section you know uh, are people missing something in this video or what kind of questions are they asking and can we answer them through this video so a lot of that sort of manual scraping if you might might call it that so a lot of that and then eventually once we started making our videos we started getting comments on our videos also about okay how did you do this and how can we do this Mm -hmm. But isn't this better? So also then try to make, try to include those comments or those questions into our next video. So a lot of community scraping, if that's yes. even a word. Well, so this this uh, this concept I'm familiar with from uh, stacking the bricks, but it's they call it a sales safari or going to find where mm -hmm. your where your customers' watering holes are, so that you can you can hang out at the watering hole and you can see what they're drinking and what they're what they're up to and gathering all that data. So they call it a sales safari. But I'm yeah, going to borrow this term. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll include a link <laughs> to Stacking the Bricks. It's stackingthebricks.com. Can't find audience. So I will, I'll link to that. But that's awesome. a, it's an excellent tactic because now you're, you're actually getting the questions that your community is really asking. And then you are able to build that content that people are already asking about or, or want. And it sounds like you you are getting engagement on the videos, which was one of my next questions, which is like, how mm -hmm. how are you measuring like traction or how are you measuring success like with the content that you? So, this is a this is a very good question, and I am always constantly seeking, you know, you know, advice or you know, looking at podcasts from people in this industry and constantly trying to figure out, okay what is it that I'm going to measure, you know, content success and, and with, and 
everywhere the answer is, oh, well, it depends. You, you really can't. And then it's, a, it's an age-old battle, I would say, in terms of when people want to start DevRel organizations within their, within their organizations, how do you convince the management of the worth of this organization? Because you're, we're not necessarily directly bringing in sales. We're not directly bringing in, you know, it's it's a it's a huge cost center. So how do you justify and how do you quantify this? And mm-hmm. can use like like the quantitative methods that okay, how many likes, how many views you can always use. They help sometimes. Just I I think they help sort of motivate you or keep you motivated while creating the content. Mm-hmm. But more than I mean, but then you can always sort of you know, it's it's a it's not necessarily a judgment on how good the content was or rather how many people really wanted to see that content. Because these sort of views vary on, oh, if there was a live stream or, you know, how how Google's algorithm works. And, you know, if your content was eight minutes long, eight minutes long or versus if it was five and a half minutes long or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I don't think necessarily this is the measure of how good it was. So I would definitely say the kind of conversations you have after the content has been watched is the measure of the success, I would say, for yeah. me. Because you can't necessarily quantify it. You can't still say that, oh, it got 17 comments, so it is the best, you know, best article or best video. But just in terms of, you know, if you see some of the videos, if you if you go to these webinars, even though the webinars are like 45 minutes long, one hour, 30 minutes long, there are comments like, oh my God, I really was looking for this. And I'm really glad you covered this. And I'm so thankful for you for making this video. And so comments like these, like you cannot sort of quantify them, but definitely this interaction is definitely an indication of how, what value you're providing to your readers, listeners, viewers, whatever type of content it is, right? So are they, you know, are you solving any of their problems? Did you did you bring something of value and also something that wasn't there and you brought that to them? Like so, did you do that? So did you solve, uh, fill any of these content gaps that were there? So I would definitely say engagement, and it can be in terms of comments on the video or comments on the blog post, or it could just be people pinging on LinkedIn that hey, you know, I read this article. This is really cool. This is what I I know. These are my sort of arguments why this is not good or why this is good. Even those comments are really, really helpful and sort of help the community as well because they can then, you know, have an honest conversation with those comments as well and sort of express their views. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And it is a very common thing. I think when I'm even interviewing other guests on the podcast and we're talking about measuring success of content and content ROI. It's very, it's like a very fuzzy and hard thing to do. And on one of the early episodes, we had talked to Eric Dietrich from Hit Subscribe. And he mm-hmm. mentioned one of the measurements that they use at his agency is a ratio between customer acquisition cost to long-term lifetime value, lifetime customer lifetime value. And mm-hmm. what what the ratio is between those two things but it's not something that you can kind of measure at an individual level. It's like a, a very top level metric. But what's interesting from that conversation, we were talking about leading versus lagging indicators and how yeah. the, like the leading indicators might be likes, 
and subscribes or page views and things like that. But it takes a while for the lagging indicators to show up, which would be comments either in person or on the content itself or people sharing content or, or things like that. And that's one of the, the big challenges. And do you, do you do any sort of long-term tracking of that stuff? Like I'm imagining a spreadsheet that just has all of your content and then you're sort of tracking, Hey, we got three comments, you know, so far over six months on this content, or we've got someone mentioned it in a conversation or any, any sort of like external tracking like that. So currently we're doing a lot of like basic tracking in that sense that you have the YouTube dashboard and it does give you a lot of these comparisons. So, you know, we do like a month on month comparison that, you know, this month we released so many videos. These had like, they had certain likes and views and that's fine. But specifically this video had more interaction. And that, you know, we try to see if like, what was the source of these videos as well. So like, excuse me. Yeah, sorry. So yeah, we like to, to sort of see what the source was. So we saw that sharing on LinkedIn really made a difference for us. And a lot of the traffic was coming in from LinkedIn. And then as our channel became better at, you know, making videos and as we became better at making videos, we also saw then the YouTube algorithm recommending us or increase in like direct search, like search results result resulting in our videos being shown in, in the feed or, or the results page. Okay. Yeah. So we do keep a track of that. Nice. And we try to figure out what we did, know what we did right, what we did wrong. So it's it's pretty basic at this point. We do want to eventually get into, you know, long term like measuring like what's this post shared and where the leads came in from. But right now we're not really focusing on that. Yeah, it's just sort of it's the building awareness campaign type of thing. Getting the most amount of eyes on your content and seeing what works, where's, where's the traction and then doubling down on it. <laughs> exactly. So what kinds of DevRel activities now are you doing, you know, outside of, outside of this kind of video creation and content creation? While we're building our platform up, we also want to meet open source creators in person and data engineers in person. Mm. So one of the things I'm doing, which is, so I'm doing two things apart from building content. One of it is like a sort of one stone, two birds kind of a thing for me. One is that I'm taking this course called a data, like a data engineering Zoom camp, which is run by this awesome place called Data Talks Club. It's a community started by Alexi Crick. Maybe I'm not saying his name right, but it's, it's, it's someone who is in Berlin and he's written a bunch of books on embed ops and machine learning, like data engineering as well. And so mm -hmm. he started this small club with like a course, which is completely free. It's on YouTube. It's, it's like do it in your own pace kind of course. And I started taking this, I started doing this course. So what it solves, like the, the purpose that it solves is one, I'm learning a lot more about data engineering mm -hmm. because I'm not from that background, right? Like I, I started learning about it or I started learning about this community since I joined Restack. So I'm learning a lot about data engineering and also like implementing it, you know, as a project. 
And on the other hand, I get to hang out with other data engineering professionals, sort of understand the psyche, understand the problems. And, you know, again, sort of be in that community where I know what they're thinking about. I know what they, what, what pains them. And, you know, I can use that in my understanding of the product and also can, you know, give a lot of feedback in building the product. So that's one. The second thing is we slowly want to start building up our community because right now we don't have, let's say, a place for the community in terms of like there's no Slack channel or there's no Discord mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. So we slowly want to start building up the community. And so as part of that, we started doing this thing called a Stammtisch. And in German, a Stammtisch is basically, you know, you, you, have, a, you have a sort of a table reserved in the pub where you go for a beer after work. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of that concept, but <laughs> we're just we're just sort of calling it Stamptish for open source creators. Nice. And so that's happening this week. We have around 60 open source creators, users, like, you know, people in the, in the open source community in Berlin who will be attending this. Okay, yeah. And yeah, it's, so, it's on the 2nd of March in Berlin and uh, we're starting slow, just like a, networking event let's call it you know just a couple of beers with uh, people excited about open source oh that's awesome and uh, in fact i'm just going to tie that back to the very first episode of the podcast where todd gardner was on and he was talking about how his tactic was very local first and he said mm -hmm. you know the types of people that i wanted to use track js are people that i would have beers with you know for lunch and so he, he took a very local approach to it and it sounds like restack is taking the same kind of approach to local open source developers in Berlin, where you're based, which is which is pretty awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and and it's the easiest way to like have these in person conversations as well, right? Because yes. it's easier to have like organize this because I live in the city, and then also it can you know we can start by like you know very slow or very small. So it need not be like a huge event with sponsors mm -hmm. and, you know, event planning and all of that, you know, jazz. It did not be that. It can be like a, we, we actually thought it would be like a small intimate group of 15, 20 people. We did not really expect 60 people to register. So that was, that was also very surprising for us and like a good learning that there are many people in Berlin who are interested and, in, you know, already like actively working in open source. Yeah, and is, is this specific to like open source data engineers or is it more of an, a wider kind of audience of just open source developers or maintainers? So this is this is a wider audience. It's not specific to data engineering. Cool. Uh, we are co-hosting this with crowd.dev. So, and then they are also focusing on open source creators, open source communities. So, uh, which is why yeah, this is much, much wider. This is not specific, but still I was, and, and this was, so initially we wanted to be, uh, wanted it to be like a satellite event for the first backstage, which is the open source event that happens every year in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in the second week of March and we wanted initially to be like a satellite event for that, but we couldn't, basically we could, we couldn't do it on those dates, but even with that, yeah, this is, it's going to be on the 2nd of March and, and it's, it's much wider. So I was really surprised to see so many people, you know, register for it. Fantastic. Well, I think one, one of the last questions I have to mm -hmm. get close to wrapping up, but what 
what for like right now where you guys are at what is your biggest challenge that you're seeing trying to market to developers there's a there's a few things right so mm-hmm. one is that content marketing to like very i mean it's not i cannot i don't think i can call it deep tech but like very technical content like when mm-hmm. you when you talk about very technical content there's a couple of challenges there one is that like the 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 smallest one is that okay how can you make these this content pieces interesting and what comes from that is okay you can only make so many introductory content pieces yes mm-hmm. and so it is necessary that you have someone's point of view who is deep into this technology who is deep into this topic and sort of have like find their point of view and then have them you know produce content which is targeting them and also from them so we're constantly looking at people who are working in in this data industry and you know who have been working for a while and sort of trying to connect with them if they they would want to you know write some content for us or do you know do interviews with us because i am clearly not someone who's worked in data engineering for a while right even i am like super new to this i'm learning as we go and so making sure that the people also know this like i don't want to fake that i'm an expert in this right right and nowhere should like the content be you know of fake or like exaggerated so one thing is that we're trying to make it as clear as possible that hey i am also learning and this is the content that you know i'm creating as i'm learning about this at the same time we are trying to figure out how to also give like an industry expert perspective and how to source these people who can write in terms of you know as a, as an industry expert and then sort of find these people and get them to work with us so that's one the second thing is definitely it's it's very it's very tricky to talk about product with uh, like talk about your own product while you're also doing educational content so <laughs> yes uh-huh. if you yeah if you if you talk about like transactional content in that sense it's a very thin line between being a very salesy video or being you know providing providing a lot of value but also saying hey also look at our product because we are solving that problem that we're talking about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's it's a difficult path i would say and i'm constantly learning and you know we we do get these comments like oh look at this there's like five sales pitches in one video <laughs> you know <laughs> comments like that and it's 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 i mean it's funny on one side but on the other side it's also an indication that okay maybe this you know maybe this this video got a little too preachy or or you know too salesy and sure, so sure. trying to find that line between not being too salesy but at the same time telling people that hey we do have a great product that we know that you know it's it's you're going to find it amazing and and mainly forget about amazing products it's it's going to solve a problem that you really have right so yeah. that is something i'm i'm sort of i wouldn't say struggling with but i'm i'm trying to find my way through it yeah that that's that's definitely a big that definitely a big challenge and i've heard the same from many many people how do how do you balance that how do you balance the technical stuff while also making it engaging someone even told me like how, like the biggest challenge for them is how do how do you make the boring technology sound amazing <laughs> and this very much speaks 
speaks to that. Absolutely. And uh, even in the one of our earlier episodes, Eric had shared in that same episode about content strategy. Like if you feel like you're almost like an imposter trying to produce this video or produce this content, then that's like an indication that you're not the right person to be making the content. And so that's why it's so important to try to get community ambassadors or even industry experts to to try to source some of that that technical expertise. And it's definitely definitely a big challenge because those, those people have their own lives, they have their own jobs, they have their own you know, stuff, and they might not, not, might not be able to create content or the content that they create might be, might be a subject to that curse of knowledge type of thing where they know so much about a topic, but they can't explain it simply. And so there's, there's that translation you got to (laughs) do. Definitely. Because in the end, content writing is also an art form, right? And not everyone, not everyone can do it, cares for it or not. And in, in the end, it's an art form that needs practice. So People who are professionals have not had always the time to practice this and, you know, present content that, you know, people can understand very easily or, you know, have a flow that that is easier to understand or easier to grasp. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to find people that, you know, have been also blogging, but also are industry experts and also can write opinionated pieces as well, right? Because in the end, you want to you want to figure out, okay, which one should I, like, no, which tool should I pick? And then you can only produce so much content which says, oh, it depends on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just want to listen, you know, hey, this is what, this is my, what my setup looks like. And I chose this because for this setup, this was more useful. And it's, yes. This sort of opinionated pieces are much more helpful for people than just saying, oh, it depends on if you want to do this, do this. If you want to do this, do that. So like people who can give examples of what their setup looks like and what they chose. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult to find such people. And again, like you said, right, managing, getting them to write while they manage their day job and then, you know, your own sort of publishing schedules. So yeah, that's exactly. a difficult one. Exactly. Well, we have maybe time for a really f- kind of a fun bonus question because I noticed I noticed that you're a traveler and you're in Berlin now, but I wanted to ask sort of what what is your favorite place to been or what ha- what has your favorite place that you've gone to been in the past? So, in like recently, I I think I, I after sort of things opened up after COVID, I went to Croatia. Mm. And I just fell in love with it. The because when I when I came here, I remember the whole Game of Thrones thing was super. You know, people <laughs> were, people were going to Croatia right, left and center. Yeah. And at that time, I was like, oh, I'm not going to be like a follower, and I'm not going to go just because it's super popular right now. And and so I ended up not going for a long time. And this time, when things opened up, I went to Croatia, and I just fell in love. Nice. It was beautiful it was like the 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 water like the just the the different shades of blue and the temperature was just perfect people were super super friendly and you know just just happy people you know because even they suffered a lot because of the pandemic right so they Mm. were also very happy to welcome guests after a long break so it's just it was a very beautiful place that's awesome So I definitely say yeah so far that's my favorite place that's awesome I we haven't gone 
we haven't gone that far east in our travels. We are in the summer. We're going to be going to Germany, and so we'll be getting mm -hmm. a, a little bit closer. So I'll be I'll be in your neighborhood yep. around then. But uh, but that's awesome. And you know, I was just wondering, does do your travels and some of the things that you do on the side do they influence the way that you do your content? I'm not sure they do. But so in the in the recent like the the last couple of years, my partner and I, what we've tried to do is wherever we go, we pick up a book that is written about that place. Mm -hmm. So and then also like they say that you know what you read reflects in your content. So maybe indirectly, maybe somewhere it does. But yeah, I I don't know if it directly influences the the kind of content that I create. Nice, nice. Awesome. Well, that's all we have. There is, there's the very last question that I usually do, which is called the drop an apple segment. And it's a mm -hmm. chance, it's a chance for you to drop some knowledge on the audience. The question is, what is one thing you wish someone had told you early on about creating content and education for developers? Ooh, this is a good one. I think I would have been, oh, okay. Getting into this, I thought I had to learn everything to be able to talk about it, to be able to speak about it. Mm. And I went on a spree of trying to do every course that there is. And I exhausted myself. I, I, you know, burned out. Basically, I had a huge burnout. And that is when someone told me, hey, it's, it's, it's completely fine not to know everything. No one expects you to know everything. The best way to learn is to, you know, do these tutorials and write about it. So like a lot of people do content creation as sort of journaling or note taking. Mm -hmm. And so somebody said that, you know, you can always have this tone that, hey, I'm learning with you. And this is what I found out while reading about this or while learning about this. And that's still okay. You don't have to be an expert on this to be able to, like, you don't have to have that preachy tone of voice. And... I am really glad they said this. And uh, since then, like I've, I'm much kinder to myself. I am not enrolling into 500 courses at the same time. So yeah, this is definitely, I would like, you know, give this as an advice, pass it on as an advice that was given to me is that it's okay that it's okay not to know everything and you don't need to start learning everything at the same time. It's okay to have this approach that I'm learning this with you and let's see where this goes. Yeah, I love that. It's it's very like share the journey type of mm -hmm. thing. I'm not I'm not the expert at the top of the mountain telling you how to climb it. I'm I'm there just ahead of you holding the light and guiding the way and I'm sharing what I know to try to help you come behind me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. So, where can people go to find out more about you and what you've been up to? Okay, so people can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the place I'm most active on. I cannot, for the love of God, figure out how to use Twitter. So I am, <laughs> I am there on Twitter as uh, underscore speaking, but I am I don't use the platform. I just I I just cannot figure out how to use it. So yeah, you can still find me on LinkedIn at Shruti Kuber, and I think I'll add the link somewhere. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram if you want to see some of the pictures of from Croatia. So I'm also on Instagram as Kubera Speaking, which is which is because you mentioned Bollywood in the beginning. It's it's a wordplay from an old, funny, really funny Bollywood movie. Nice. So my yeah, that's that's where my username comes from. So yeah, that's <laughs> that's where you can find me. 
Excellent. And I'll include links to this and I'll include a link to Restack as well. And uh, this was a lot of fun, Shruti. Thanks for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting. This was really a lot of fun. And yeah, this was, this was nice to sort of I don't talk about the content creation process because it's it's not usually like documented, right? It's it's going on as you do it. You, it's it's in your head. So it was really nice to like sort of speak about it and talk about it in like a very methodical sort of a way. Yes. So thank you for doing this. And I, I really think the audience will get a lot of value out of kind of hearing what it's like day to day and the, the types of things that you are thinking about when creating content. So thanks again for sharing that with everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shruti. Here are my takeaways when it comes to developer marketing and education. Personas, personas, personas. We talked about the importance of knowing your developer audience and niching down. This is part of your positioning strategy, and it's how you can get laser-focused on the pain points of your customers so you can find traction quickly. As an example, Shruti and her team found that GDPR was a big motivation for data engineers self-hosting open-source products, which allowed them to craft very targeted content. To know your customers that deeply, hang out with them like an embedded reporter. Shruti said she is in a million Slack channels where her developer audience is. She called this community scraping. And I've also heard this as what Amy Hoy from Stacking the Bricks calls going on a sales safari. In terms of education, you'll get to know what developers in your community have questions about, talk about, and want to learn so you can create content that will get seen. In terms of marketing, you can find pain points, hopes, and dreams, and incorporate language your customers use to craft more effective copy. Plus, you'll get to see what gets shared and what resonates. Developer content planning needs to use a top-down and bottom-up approach taking inputs from both customer conversations with sales and DevRel embedded in the community to help inform what to create. Shruti's team gets everyone into a room to maximize collaboration and takes an agile approach. They landed on a monthly content creation sprint cadence and that works for them. Find out what works for you. Rather than lots of blog posts or writing, Shruti is finding YouTube and LinkedIn to be the channels that are getting the most traction. Short, informative videos on what developers in the community are already talking about are working well for her developer audience. Check out her videos on the Restack YouTube channel for a great example of how to create engaging videos that developers like watching. Besides content creation, Restack is taking a local-first approach to building community by partnering with local organizations in Berlin to host events, a throwback to episode 1 with Todd Gardner, who did the same thing for growing TrackJS initially. If you don't yet have developer personas defined, you might be wondering where to start. I put together a free persona toolkit with templates specifically designed for developer audiences that have helped me with both client work and open source work. You'll find a link to that in the show notes for this episode at deved.rocks 11. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to get tips on removing barriers to adoption when scaling your dev tool, check out my blog at kamranayub.com daily. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Kamran Ayub. I hope you have a lovely day.